you're listening to The Film File. This week, brought to you by the letters G, E, E, and K. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon, sat over here. And, as ever, thank you for joining us on your favourite podcast, because I know it's our favourite podcast. Andy, how's your week been? My week has been quiet at work, uh, but the, I've, I've been busy in other aspects. I've been like I've been te- tweak, tweaking and tailoring in the background on uh, the podcast. You might notice that we're now out on YouTube. Ooh, oh yeah, yeah, it's weird because I, I I watched it on YouTube, which was a bizarre experience compared to listening to it in the car. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's bit it's calm before the storm at work because obviously we've got Doctor Strange out next week and it's just filler films except for like Downton Abbey. So we've been it's been a long week. I've worked six days on the run. I'm feeling very tired because when it's quiet, it really drags and you're constantly trying to find new games to entertain yourself at work. When it comes to new games, your last new game was you were playing the Kinder Egg Russian Roulette. That's what we talked about. You know, if you're listening with with children, Andy is a grown up. And he should know better. As they say at the beginning of the Jackass films, warning, these stunts are created by professionals. Please do not copy or emulate anything that we say on this show. So um, I've had a busy week, stressfully busy week uh, with my students. I've uh, been handing in their finished screenplays. And you know what? I'm really, really impressed with, with some of the work they've done. Uh, there's there's a couple which are would be fantastically filmable. Um, there's some which aren't as good, but no one's turned in. No, I'll I'll strike that. Only one has turned in a a, a poor screenplay. There's always going to be uh, there's always going to be one, but the majority have been really really good. I've been incredibly impressed. But it is that thing of all students, and I was the same, leaving it all to the last minute uh, when you're trying to upload it. Literally, I was getting work coming in as I'm uploading it onto the exam board, you know, let alone yeah. the deadline was the previous week. So I found this week super, super stressful. On the subject of students, uh, we've we've got a member of staff who works at the cinema and I'm not going to give you the name of that member of staff because I think it'd be unfair to completely sound out, especially when the amount of hatred that will get thrown her way. <laughs> who, it was revealed to me this week that, and, and we say that your thoughts on films are subjective. And you can't say that someone's got the right or wrong. But when someone says that the Back to the Future films are all one-star films, it's that's it. It's war. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's that's open season, mate. Absolutely. One person just came into the office and was like, "Oh, can you believe that such and such says that all the Back to the Future films are one-star films?" And like me and Scott were just like, "You what?" And we had to go out and I was like, "Scott, Scott, hold back, hold back." (laughs) Uh, And then like you know, I'm following her on Letterbox now. And it's just angered me even more because I just looked through more of the films that she's rated as half star or what. Kong Skull Island, half a star. I mean, seriously, the cinematography alone is a two star. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, oh. Yeah. the thing is, leave, I, it, Andy. leave it. I was expecting it to be that I look at what they've rated as the highest results and think, well, you don't know what you're talking about. But none of their higher rated films I can disagree with. All of them, I can see why they were high rated even if i didn't agree that something's a four and a half star and i think maybe it's a three star all the high rated ones you can see the quality of it's just bewildering 
all the ones that she's given one star to and it's just become a bit of a joke at work now that like uh, whenever she's like finished her shifts like thanks for working a one star one star performance today <laughs> <laughs> so you could say she's a star employee oh <laughs> um, this week has been a bit sad we lost one of the greatest comic book artists of our time this week with neil adams who died at age 80 uh just a huge as hugely influential as, as Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and John Basima and all those guys. It, 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 to some extent, for me, uh, even more so because he was the artist that I tried to emulate when I had dreams of becoming a, a comic book artist and never got close to being as great as Neil Adams. And um, interestingly enough, as, uh, as a fan of the, of the artist and, and, and a, a fan of the man, he was an, an interesting guy. I don't always agree with him. He had this strange theory about the earth being hollow, but um, he was Neil Adams, so he gets a pass because he was a, such a genius artist. But Kevin Smith, on his podcast, Fat Man Beyond, recorded a, a five-hour interview with him. And, and it's just absolutely wonderful listening. Um, and uh, he put it out again as a, as a tribute to, to Neil Adams. And anybody who's not into comics, Neil Adams redefined Batman. His, his contribution to Batman in particular from the late 70s through to the 80s is the bit that made the character more dynamic. It it brought it... Redefined the character. It made it, it made it what we see the character as ever since. It's, it, it's absolutely the biggest impact on Batman framework of all time, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. I mean, after the very campy Batman TV show in which the comics reflected, Batman was kind of rebooted and going back to being the Dark Knight detective. And uh, him and Denny O'Neill re- recreated Batman, and it was just—it was just a thing of beauty. His art was so dynamic; it's almost three D in the way that he positioned his characters. And it, of course, he was responsible again, if you're a comics fan, for the introduction of the Green Lantern and, and uh, Green Arrow team up, and of course, the very famous drugs issue. Uh, an absolutely influential artist. People like Bill Sinkovich uh, drew their inspiration from. Uh, Neil Adams and, and his early work, Bill Sinkovich's early work, was uh, truly inspired by by Neil Adams's layouts. A, a fantastic artist, and and his work will be sadly missed. Even in as he got older, he, his work changed as most uh, uh, artists do as they as they uh, get out in, into their later years. But he still had that dynamism that was just just a thing of beauty. So um, yeah, a little tribute to to Neil Adams, and and please get the chance to. Um, after you've listened to this show, of course, listen to uh, Kevin Smith's interview with him. It's five hours that will will fly by, and you think, ah, oh, can't can't give myself five hours to it. You don't have to listen to it all at once. It is just brilliant. So, shall we run through our question of the week? Yes. Yeah, so we set a Twitter challenge, and last week's Twitter challenge, I, I did we do well with it? Did we get some responses? Okay. The question that we asked for last week was, what is your favourite decade for films, and which films stand out the most from them? And it shows that it, you can never really gauge what's going to be a good question that gets impact because we didn't have a lot of responses from this one. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, um, I, I thought, you know, it's a democracy. You don't have to respond. Disappointed in you all. Please stand at the back uh, with your hands on your heads and in a classroom style right now. But, you know, I'll forgive you in time. However, regular listener and regular contributor to the show, Stevie Dan 1969, put forward the it's definitely the 80s for me. And he listed films such as Aliens, Blade Runner, 
The Hitcher, Near Dark, Predator, all films that I can't really disagree with. Yeah. Now, I'm kind of cheating on my one because I can't actually narrow it down to one decade. My heart, just like with Stevie Dan, goes to the 80s because, you know, I was was a young kid growing up and all the films such as E.T. and the, the films that he mentioned himself all grabbed my attention over that era. But when I think about it, that doesn't take into context the fact that some of the most defining films through my life, which I've covered in me video uh, posts, the years of my life in film, films such as Jaws and Close Encounters and Star Wars that came out in the 70s had more of an impact on me than the 80s runner films, you know, even more of an impact than Indiana Jones in the 80s. And then, and this is because that me and my life in film, I only did the first 20 years. I've only started getting into the 90s. I'm starting to do the research to put together the next wave of videos for that over on the YouTube channel. Yeah. And I'm realizing that in the 90s, there's a wealth of films every year that have some insignificance to me. The 90s kind of captured my attention with different types of films you know, I started watching the serious films alongside the general entertainment. So films such as Schindler's List came into there. Truman Show came into there. It, it, it expanded my idea of what films is because I was at that early 20s age, late late teens to early 20s age in the 90s, where you're starting to expand your horizons, so to speak. You know, and none of this takes into account when I what. You know, I used to sit at home as a child watching classic films from the 50s, 60s and 70s with my mum so musicals from like the the golden era are hugely influential to me you've got all your it's a wonderful life's your psychos etc all of these films from different decades so i'm i'm backing away from saying one because i can't narrow it down to one and it's possible that's got something to do with why we didn't get a huge response back maybe that was the uh, uh the reason most people didn't join in is just trying to narrow it down I mean, I can I can honestly say that I'm a I'm the seventies only because my parents were very good at letting me stay up and watch movies that were on TV. Now, uh, it wouldn't have been until the late seventies that I started going to the cinema and especially going to the cinema on my own. And so, really, the arrival of Star Wars was was my big cinema cinema jumpstart, for want of a better term. But my parents were, were very good at letting me watch movies, and and the movies I remember are watching them from the seventies. For for me, it was the era of yes of the start of the blockbuster, and so you've got the start of Spielberg's career and Lucas's career and uh, Brandy Palmer uh, and all those guys. But there, there was a time when they were still making essentially grown up movies as summer blockbusters. So you would get a movie like Dog Day Afternoon. And you would get Jaws, and you would get Star Wars and Close Encounters, and you would get Taxi Driver, and you'd get hugely influential filmmakers. And it was the era of the director, I think, and you know, and the the rogue directors who who had come out of the sixties and the seventies and were making very interesting work. People like Michael Cimino, uh, you know, John Carpenter start in the seventies with with Halloween and Dark Star and, and and all those movies. So I think it was a a great opening. It, a, a great opening era to learn about cinema but you are absolutely right Andy every era and especially whenever you join it is the era that you associate with and there are great films for every era so maybe this week's Twitter challenge will be a little bit lighter and a little bit more easy to join in well I've given it some thought and I've tossed around a few ideas and I've come back with this one and it all started uh, yesterday when I went to see the Nick Cage movie that you recommended and reviewed on the show. 
And there were some great little needle drops within that. And I've been a big fan of uh, Peacemaker and the needle drops in that and created my own soundtrack album from it. I know, I clearly have more time on my hands than I should. So what songs, when you think of a certain song, you relate to a movie? And I know we did soundtracks the other week, but thinking predominantly of songs. So so songs that you associate with a film. Now, uh, we're not looking at musicals, but we're looking at, uh, at needle drops. But you might think, okay, that song was written for that soundtrack, so can I associate that? Yeah, of course you can, because you know what? We're fast and hard with the rules. In fact, we're fast and hard with the rules 10. <laughs> so what have we got in this week's show? Well, we've got, of course, the reviews. Andy, what are you going to be talking about? Because I'm thinking we're going to be light on reviews this week because neither of us have seen Downton Abbey. So this week we've got only a couple of films. Moonshot, which landed on Sky last week and other services this week, and Silverton Siege that landed on Netflix this week. We're going to be doing this week's deep dive into not one, not two, but four films based around the same premise. Are they remakes? Are they reboots? Well, we'll find out when we talk about the invasion of the body snatchers. But before any of that, of course, the item, which is the main reason for you coming along rather than just hearing our dulcet tones. This is the news. And as ever, with the news, we're going to kick off with the box office. Now, as we pointed out with reviews this week, it's a quiet week. So uh, is it going to be quiet at the box office? So, yeah, the box office this week, it's it, particularly in the US, it's more or less just a holdover week. Nothing major happening uh, because everything's just getting ready for next week when Doctor Strange opens. So there's not really a huge lot of shocks in the top five. In fact, there's none. The Bad Guys retains number one with 16.1 million. Song of the Hedgehog 2 still taking some money there, taking another 11.4 million. Fantastic Beasts still scraping whatever it can, but it's definitely not going to um, break profit at this rate. 8.3 million it took this weekend. The Northman, 6.3 million, still in the top four, but certainly deserves to have taken much more than what it has done. And Everything Everywhere All at Once, which we're anticipating with bated breath over here in the UK as it releases in a couple of weeks, took another 5.5 million. A lot of positive buzz around that film. Here's hoping it lives up to the expectations when it releases in a couple of weeks. Here in the UK, we actually got a new film that actually did a bit of business. It, it did something. Taking just over three million this weekend, Downton Abbey, a new era, shows that there's still life in the old dog yet. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 retained second place. Lost City can kept third place. Again, just as the US, it's holdovers for the rest of the top five. Fantastic Beasts, Secrets of Dumbledore in fourth place, and the bad guys still holding in there in fifth place. But it was all about Downton Abbey this weekend for visitors to cinemas across the UK. So clearly the anticipation, is, from what you said, Andy, is going to be uh, Doctor Strange. And with luck, because you can never guarantee these things, <laughs> we'll be talking about Doctor Strange in next week's show. With luck again, we'll have both seen it and both give you our reviews. Spoiler free, of course. So there's lots of news this week as CinemaCon has just played out in the US. Uh, Warner Brothers are considering Batgirl for the big screen. Uh, the film was originally a HBO Max title, but now there's rumblings that it's, it may get the big screen treatment. And now this follows in the footsteps of the Blue Beetle, which has already been announced to take that route to the big screen. That means one of two things for me. It means they've got a lot of confidence 
doesn't mean that it's a great movie, but it means they've got a lot of confidence in it. And it means off the back end of the Batman that they know that people are bat crazy, so to speak, again. It's possible that some of, the, some of this is due to concerns that The Flash and Aquaman 2, which have already been pushed back to next year due to, well, reasons, uh, might need DC and Warner Brothers to get general audiences back on board with more movies to aid those films in the marketing. Because Flash and Aquaman 2, as we know, have controversial casting in both of those films. Tell us, or remind us rather, the controversy surrounding both films. Obviously, we got with Amber Heard. And if you're not aware of who Amber Heard is, you're clearly not watching the news because there's the very (laughs) public profile court case between Heard and Johnny Depp over allegations of abuse from both parties that is playing out on everything at the moment. You cannot avoid it. And she's not coming across in a very good way. In fact, this is not going the way that she probably hoped it would. And then, in addition, you've got with Ezra Miller in The Flash. Now, Ezra Miller has been arrested twice in a month's period uh, for alleged assault on fans or members of the public. And this isn't the first time, and it's, it's become too much of a pattern. The PR team at Warner Brothers clearly have a lot to do in order to change public perception of both of these people. Or is there going to be reshoots? Ah. I mean, the Ezra Miller situation doesn't just um, affect Flash. And apparently the actor likes to be regarded as they rather than uh, him or her, which I know is always difficult to try and get your head into sometimes. I don't mean that detrimentally, but just trying to remember it is that they... I've got two huge franchises at, at, at Warner's, which is now in jeopardy. And, and, you know, when you've got that amount of responsibility to the studio, let alone fans, that is a worry. That is an absolute, absolute worry for both those franchises. And I'm pretty sure Warner's right now are kind of scratching their head, trying to figure this out. Or where do they move forward for it? And, and especially more so for uh, The Flash. I mean, we've seen, because it, it's, it's, it's done, it's in the can. Uh, we've seen with Fantastic Beasts that that they can quite are capable of replacing an actor uh, in the in in the same role. So Fantastic Beasts, not so much, but certainly with Flash, when you are the lead, are they going to do an all the money in the world? And at this stage, is it worth doing that because of the cost of that? So uh, your guess is as good as mine, but it's it's an interesting place to be. Anyway, getting back to talking about CinemaCon. There was a first look at uh, John Wick Chapter 4 and The Expendables 4. Any other big news And before we get on to talking about uh, Mission Impossible? Well, it's now officially announced that The Batman will get a sequel with Matt Reeves. Which, yeah, came as a big surprise to everybody. Yeah, with Matt Reeves <laughs> directing. I mean, th- this was no big secret. We knew that it was going to, but they've made it official now. He's going to return to direct Pattinson once more. There's no story known as of yet. J.J. Abrams is set to produce a Hot Wheels movie. Now, this is a project that's been in the works for decades with names such as McGee and Juan Carlos Fresnadillo attached at varying points. Let's expect Fast and Furious style action in a Mattel branded idea. And speaking of Mattel, we saw the first glimpse this week of Barbie played by Margot Robbie looking very much the part in pink car and clothes. Yeah, I saw the still. Now, this is a film that I'm bizarrely excited for. Mainly due to Greta Gerwig. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Directing and writing alongside Noah Baumbach. Now, Baumbach, for those who don't know, has been responsible for a lot of great screenplays for Wes Anderson, as well as the May Horowitz stories. Yeah, I think you're right. Noah Baumbach, um, as you said, 
worked with Wes Anderson, a filmmaker in his own right, one of my favourite films. I never remember whether it's called Kicking and Screaming, which is a, uh, a Will Farrell film, or Screaming and Kicking, but it's about uh, college and it, it's fantastic. And that led me into being a huge fan of Noah Baumbach from there. Yeah, throw in the rest of the cast, Ryan Gosling as Ken, and names such as Will Ferrell, Simu Liu, Kate McKinnon, America Ferreira, Rhea Perlman, Emma McKee, Issa Rae. It could be something that properly breaks expectations down. It's going to break the conventions. It's not going to be a girly Barbie film. It'll be something a bit different. Universal have delayed the adaptation of the Mario movie, which has Chris Pratt voicing the famous plumber. It's moved from December this year to April next year. December was already far too crowded. The game's creator and Nintendo leader, Shigeru Miyamoto, said, After consulting with Chris-san, producer Chris Melodorani, my partner at Illumination on the Super Mario Brothers film, we decided to move the global release to spring 2023. My deepest apologies, but I promise it will be well worth the wait. However, all is not lost for Christmas, as the Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, has now moved to December the 21st, so it's all saved. Way. <laughs> Also moving to that date is Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which was initially set to open alongside Avatar 2, but wisely moved a week. Did I say Avatar 2? I, I clearly mean Avatar The Way of Water. Which no one will ever call ever. The first trailer for Cameron's new film will play exclusively before Doctor Strange for one week. Now, oh, really? Okay. Just be ready in case it doesn't get this in the UK, because this happens a lot whenever they announce something playing exclusively. They kind of mean exclusively in the US, and they don't necessarily mean the international waters. Please do not take it out on cinema staff if this trailer is not there. But it's being said that Avatars 2's first trailer will be added to the beginning of Doctor Strange for one week before it's released online the following week. Also, the first, first Avatar film is set for a reissue at cinemas in late September. Okay, the big Mission Impossible news was? Yep, Mission Impossible 7 is now no longer going to be called Mission Impossible 7. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's a part one of two title. As we know from previous films, that while they're in production, they're called by their number, so Impossible 5, Mission Impossible 6, but then by the time they've been coming out, they've been given, like, Rogue Nation or Fallout. Well... MI7 is going to be titled Dead Reckoning Part 1. So I think we can guess the title for Mission Impossible 8 now. <laughs> and the fact that they've called it Part 1 shows that we knew that these films were going to be linked. They've all been linked to some degree. But we didn't know whether it was going to be a direct linking. It seems pretty obvious now that it is going to have a cliffhanger ending. Probably a literal cliffhanger. And the Quiet Place spin-off is going to be titled A Quiet Place Day 1, which I think drops a hint as to what time frame setting it's going to be setting. Well, yeah, I mean, it's got me scratching my head. Now, we've taken our time to get here because there was uh, an, another director originally in the big chair to do that before pig director Michael Sanoski joined. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm intrigued by this. I think it's, it's, it's an interesting way to open up the franchise. While I had a lot of fun with The Quiet Place too. Uh, I, I thought it was a good movie. I just thought it lacked a direction. It, there, there didn't feel a necessity to it. And I think if you can go back and explore the bigger world, uh, the quiet place world, then I, and as we got suggested at the beginning of the film, then I think, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting way to go. And I'm, I'd be more intrigued with seeing how the world develops from there. Sony have promised us more Ghostbusters, although in what guise, we don't know yet. Will it be Afterlife? It's kind of looking like Afterlife. Well, I'd heard I'd heard Afterlife being being mentioned as the uh, getting a sequel, so um, we'll wait and see. And they've also threatened a third Venom film, 
Carnage may have performed weaker than the first film, but was still a resounding box office success. Okay. They've also teased a Craven the Hunter film, a George Foreman biopic, and the Whitney Houston I Want to Dance with Somebody biopic, as well as the third Equalizer film that we mentioned last week. Yeah. And Sony have clearly... I mean, this is this is the news of the week. This, this is the, the thing that fans of the comics have been waiting for for ages. Sony <laughs> are finally tapping into a much-beloved character a huge, huge name, one that you know we've we've clamoured for for at least the fifteen years that this character has been around. From the very two issues that he popped up in, yes, El Muerto will be who will be played by Puerto Rican rapper Bad Bunny, aka Benito Antonio Martinez Acasio. Who you ask? Not Bad Bunny. <laughs> who was El Muerto? Yes, there's there's an echo, an echo around comic fans. He was a wrestler who fought Spider-Man in a wrestling match in one issue of the comic over a decade and a half ago, and then was briefly in the next issue. He literally was in two comics. I want to unpack this, Andy, because I've been giving this some some thought. Now, in a world that we live in, giving a Puerto Rican lead character is is an interesting idea, and let's be the first comic book movie to to do that, having a a, a star. Of all the characters you can go back through the uh, Spider-Man universe and pick, why pick this character that that even fans have no idea who it is? He's not even come back for an additional uh, any additional storylines. So you've okay. So Sony have got a blank slate to do whatever they want with this character. But we talked about this the other week. This is what's going to kill comic books as movies because audiences are going to get fed up with. Uh, what they think are tie-ins to the uh, the Marvel universe, same with DC as well, uh, and and gonna go. They have basically got their hands in our pockets, and they're doing it for to tie in rather than about care and attention to making great movies. You know it, that was written all over Mobius. What Sony are doing is almost a little bit like Fox did when Fox had all the Marvel characters. Chuck it out. Don't give any care and attention to the characters. Let's just build up and build up until uh, there's there's one that absolutely fails, other than Mobius. So it's a dangerous move that's going to impact on comic book movies, in my humble opinion. It just bewilders me that they've got a wealth of characters that they can tap into. You know, why why haven't we got a Spider Man twenty ninety nine? Why haven't we got a Miles Morales? So you know, where's my fabulous Frogman movie? <laughs> I want a Eugene movie. I can't believe that we've got El Muerto. That even comic book fans don't know who he is before we've got a fabulous Frogman on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. Why aren't they doing? Why aren't they doing Miles Morales? You know, there's got to be a plan. What? Okay, I'm figuring there's got to be a plan why they've not brought in Miles Morales at this stage. Anyway, roll on another spin-off about a girl who Peter Parker bought a coffee from back in 2009 because that sounds as exciting as El Muerto. Meanwhile, over at the MCU, the Marvels and Ant-Man Quantumania have swapped release dates. Marvels is now going to release on July the 28th, 2023, whilst Ant-Man will open on February the 17th. This is reportedly due to Ant-Man being further along in production than Marvels, but you can't help wonder if the box office success of Captain Marvel, which took over a billion, compared to Ant-Man and the Wasp, 700 million, is another reason why the big summertime slot has changed. At the same time, sad news, but John Watts has stepped away from the Fantastic Four title, saying he needs a break from the superhero realm after the three Spider-Man films. Yeah, well, um, you know, all the press releases, of course, are, are positive. John Watts saying that he wants to, uh, you know, work with Marvel again. 
and I guess he's first in line if they do a Spider-Man 4 because, you know, that made all the money and they're not going to let him go. And, you know, it was one of those press releases where you just read, yeah, written by the PR department. However, that does bring us on to the question, who is going to direct the Fantastic Four movie? Now, it must be pretty much down the line. We're never going to find out or it's going to take us an awful long time to find out really why John Watts moved on from it as he was announced a year or so ago. So they're clearly, it's on the roll. Who would we get to direct the Fantastic Four? That was what I, I keep thinking about. Who is the right director? It's got to be somebody who can do light, because I think the Fantastic Four should be light. I don't think, you know, we've seen it go dark, and, 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 and boy, do we want to avoid that train wreck again. Uh, it's a family film, and I mean that as it's about a family. So who would be a good choice? Who could do Big Spectacle? Uh, and, and keep it honest at the same time. And, and we talked about Robert Eggers, but I, 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 I crossed him off the list very quickly. So <laughs> interesting to, 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 to think about. Uh, guys out there, who would you get to direct uh, the next Fantastic Four movie, keeping in mind that John Watts has now pulled out? We have seen online that some fans are speculating whether or not John Krasinski would be a good choice. He, you know, he's a fan favourite for the casting of Reed Richards. Would he be work for the directing? Interesting. I could see him do either. He's, uh, yeah, he's he, a good choice, actually, John Krasinski, even if he wasn't in it, because I don't think he could do both with a big blockbuster. Would be a good director. He can bring light and he can bring uh, tension to it. Yeah, yeah, he, he can go there, top of the list. Uh, more so, I'd like to see him as, uh, as Mr. Fantastic. All right, as soon as that news announces, we will share it with the rest of you. So, Wicked. The fantastic musical. Which is one of your favourite musicals, I believe. Yes, I've got a lot of love for Wicked. I've seen it a few times on the stage. It's absolutely marvellous. And it's an adaptation of the book by Gregory Maguire. But it changes from the book. The book is very serious in tone. The stage show emulates The Wizard of Oz, the movie. And it ties into The Wizard of Oz, the movie. It tells the story of the origin of the Wicked Witch of the West how she became the Wicked Witch of the West and how what we perceive as her evil actions were manipulated when seen from a different perspective. The film is being directed by John M. Chu and it's now going to be split into two parts, which I think is perfect because the stage production, the first part of it is all the history of El Faba, the Wicked Witch, as she becomes the self-designated title the Wicked Witch of the West, as she decides to become that person that people perceive her as because of her skin condition, making her look green and stand out. And then there's a break in the production. And then the second act is what kind of runs alongside The Wizard of Oz. So it it should work well to be split into two parts because it allows each part to be its own story and be given the full detail and budget and attention that it needs. Okay. Ariana Grande and Cynthia Erivo are playing Glinda and El Faber, played famously on stage show by Kristen, Ch- Kristen Chenoweth and Adina Menzel. And I was not big fans of their music. You know, I don't have their stuff playing on Spotify at any particular time. I know enough about them to know that they are great choices for the roles that they're going to be playing. This is a film that is high on my radar. John M. Chu is a great director. And I can't wait to see what it does with the big screen. Uh, talking of CinemaCon, I know we've moved on from it. And uh, and this is a film that no one in the world ever wanted, which was a Hunger Games prequel. Rewatched the first one with the child um, 
couple of weeks ago, and it holds up very well. After that, it became a bit of a mess. And again, the idea of splitting up one book into two to, you know, fleece the audience as opposed for any creative reasons. Uh, and it felt padded out. After, after book one, it just felt af- absolutely padded out. Do we need a prequel? No. No, we, we were more interested in that character, if anything, than, than the world itself. So unless it's exceptionally good, I, I don't see the world begging, begging for this movie. One bit of news that gets me excited, Coraline and Paranorman animation studio Leica. We've got a lot of love for Leica. Big fan. Well, they've revealed their next animated movie is called The Night Gardener. The story is described as a gritty neo-noir folktale centred on a young man in rural Missouri fighting to keep his family together in the wake of a tragedy. Sounds dark. Yes. We know that Helmer of Kubo and the Two Strings, Travis Knight, is going to direct the new film from an original screenplay by Ozark creator and the judge scribe Bill Dubuque. Knight says in a statement... The Night Gardener is such a beautiful and timeless story that quickens the pulse as often as it breaks the heart. Bill is a masterful storyteller. He's crafted a lyrical world layered with complex characters, provocative ideas, and keenly felt emotion. It's going to be a hell of a movie. Yep. So we're getting The Batman as a sequel, which was an absolute no-brainer. Another no-brainer is it's been announced that we are now getting a Sonic the Hedgehog 3. Who would have thought when everybody was writing off because they did they didn't like the design that we're now getting a third film. And from what I gather, Andy, we're getting a spin-off as well. Yes, of course. I mean, the, the two Sonic films have done great business. And so it was no surprise that we're going to get a third film in the series. Whether Jim Carrey will step away from his retirement that he announced and return as Robotnik, I think it'd be a shame if he doesn't because he'd just grown to really represents the character from the games in such a perfect way. But we're also getting a TV series spin-off in which it will focus on the character of Knuckles, who was introduced in the second film, voiced by Idris Elba. Yes, fans of Sega's characters have a lot to be grateful for, as the franchise has completely delivered more than anyone really anticipated it to do. Everyone just kind of wrote it off as uh, it's just a video game movie, will it work? And the first and second films have just shown that, yes, it can, and it taps beautifully into the video game aspect of it, particularly in the second film. Very much on my radar. Well, brush my teeth and call me Smiley, because while we mentioned Thor, Love and Thunder last week, we didn't actually talk about the amazing <laughs> trailer that landed. We didn't we didn't give any details on it. Oh, I know you saw it, Andy, because we were both kind of in awe of how cool it looked. But boy, does it look cool. It was a thing of beauty. I, I, I showed the trailer to uh, my other half. She's not a big Marvel fan. She She's endured rather than enjoyed, I think, is probably the way to describe it. But even she was in for this one. She she liked Ragnarok and she she saw that one and I think she'll be in for this one. Yeah, it just it just did everything that you hoped it would. I mean, yes, deep down inside, I would have liked to have seen the Robert Eggers version of Thor, having seen uh, Northman this week. But the way they've taken this character and it's clearly kept Chris Hemsworth on board because he he's now fully into it. I thought he would have been the first one to have departed especially after how weak the character was treated in in not just uh, Thor Dark World, but in the second Avengers movie, to have come back and, and been so strong and to, and to pick the direction that they've gone with it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well, well in. 
I'm sure you're really disappointed to hear that Justin Lin has left the Fast and Furious 10 due to creative differences. Or Fast 10, your seatbelts. As he said, with the support of Universal, I've made the difficult decision to step back as director of Fast 10 while remaining on the project as a producer. Okay, so, so let's unpack this one, shall we now? If Justin Lin is leaving while production is in process, that means he's stepping away because he is... I'm... And this is only pure speculation, so uh, um, don't take it as gospel. It, it's got to be that he's clashing heads with with some of the leading cast, because you don't step away from a movie while it's in production, uh, while you're physically shooting, as opposed to John Watts stepping away before the cameras have rolled. This has got to be, you know, something internal, uh, and I, I'm guessing, and and. Uh, I'm not on set. I've not seen anything. I don't know anybody at Universal, but it's got to be the relation between Diesel and 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 Lynn, both wanting a different direction. And you know what? When you've got a big star on a movie, I always remember a quote from from Bruce Willis ringing up when he was unhappy on the the set of uh, of one of the Die Hard sequels, and he goes, um, "This is my idea. What's your? Who's your idea to replace uh, to play John McClane next?" And, and that's the kind of decision that a director goes, yeah, well, I'm out now. Yeah, I mean, it's expected that even though it's not being reported, Vin Diesel has had history of conflicts on the direction yeah. of the films. And it, I do suspect that it is with that. Um, in addition, it's worth noting that Lynn had directed five of the previous installments and they'd actually started production when the news broke. And the pause in production is costing an estimated 600000 to $1 million per day. And cost isn't the only issue here, as the stars of the film have tight schedules. Yep. Charlize Theron, Jason Momoa, and Brie Larson in particular are all tied into other schedules that may be impacted. And so by the time production starts up again, it's possible that some of the cast might have to change. Yeah, because it ain't going to be Jason Momoa who's stepping into uh, this film now to push out Justin Lin. And it's certainly not going to be Charlize Theron jumping in and, and kicking out the director. So, um, you know, the good money is this is between star and director. We'll wait and see, but I bet you they've got a director ready to shoot. They'll be shooting second unit right now uh, and as much stunt work as possible and, and any pickups that they can do until that director's found. I'm, I'm guessing by next week they'll have announced a new director. We'll see. We've got some TV news as well that's come out as a result of CinemaCon because a lot of the studios are linked with TV as well now. One which is going to be exciting for both of us is the After Party Season 2 has set their cast. Oh, I can't wait. I, I loved it. Based on your recommendation, After Party, absolutely adored it. Tiffany Haddish, Sam Richardson and Zoe Chow will all reprise their roles for the second season of the Apple TV Plus murder mystery comedy series. And in addition, the new actors filling out other major roles include Elizabeth Perkins, Zach Woods, Poppy Lowe, Paul Walter Hauser. I'm there for Paul Walter Hauser. Anna Conkle, Jack Whitehall. I'm not necessarily there for Jack Whitehall, but in the right hands, let's see what he can deliver and Vivian Wu. The second season will be set around the mur a murder at a wedding party. Okay, I'll be in. Uh, Johan Renk, who gave us Chernobyl, is to direct the first two episodes of the June prequel series for HBO Max, right. and will then serve as executive producer on the show. Titled Dune the Sisterhood, he replaces Denis Villeneuve, whose commitments to the second film preventing working on the series, and it's set 10,000 years before the events of the films. The tale then follows the 
Harkonnen sisters as they combat forces that threaten the future of humankind and will see them establish the sacred order of the Bene Gesserit. This is backstory that some of the backstory novels have touched upon, but it, it, it's got enough of a loose framework in there for them to be really creative and really do something spectacular and special with this. I think Dune is one of those series of books and hopefully films that can spin off into so many different backstory tales to give a whole wealth of output out there. I'm on board for this. And also on HBO Max, fans of the Harley Quinn animated series may be pleased to know that a spin-off is in the works. A 10-episode adult animated comedy revolving around the lovable loser Kite Man and his new squeeze Golden Glider as they moonlight as criminals to support their foolish purchase of Gotham's seediest dive bar. It's a place where everybody knows your name, but not everybody knows your secret identity. Matt Oberg is going to lead the voice cast as Kite Man, and yeah, I'm all there for that. I, I love love the Harley Quinn. Um, we don't, we've not given it enough enough kudos, but the animated series is fantastic. Uh, interesting trailer landed this week for a TV show, uh, Sissy Spacek and J.K. Simmons, my all-time favourite go-to if you want to make a film even better, throw J.K. Simmons into it, for a mysterious portal in the series known as The Night Sky, which... If you get a chance to look at the trailer, it looks very intriguing. WandaVision scribe Bobak Esfajani has joined the team working on the Alien series and the upcoming sci-fi series Kindred, both for FX. He will serve as writer and supervising producer on both shows. Ridley Scott will be executive producing Alien and Noah Hawley, who gave us Fargo and Legion, is leading the writing team. Hawley said a few months ago about the project, Alien is a fascinating story because it's not just a monster movie. It's about how we're trapped between the primordial past and the artificial intelligence of our future, where both are trying to kill us. The Alien series is set on Earth in the future. At this moment, I describe that as Edison versus Westinghouse versus Tesla. Someone's going to monopolize electricity. We just don't know which one it is. I'm not going to say that I'm not in with uh, an Aliens TV series. It's not where I want to see aliens of the week appear but what i am in with is the showrunner because of the showrunner brought us legion and brought us fargo that's the intriguing aspect more so than anything else about this show but I, I, of course i'll watch it of course I'll, I'll be watching it i'm just at this stage it's not where i'd want to see the the, the the franchise go filming won't begin until next year as hawley is busy working on the new series of fargo yeah it's hawley's name attached to it that makes me Look forward to something special from the Alien TV series. And on that bombshell, that is the news. You're listening to your favourite podcast, The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you haven't subscribed yet, the big question is why? If you want to know more about The Film File, all you have to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform and hit the subscribe button and you'll get updates, news, extra additional episodes all from the family that we like to call the film file. Even Vin Diesel considers us family. <laughs> dysfunctional family. We're a dysfunctional family, but we're still a family. It's all <laughs> about family. So what can you do to know more about the film file? Pretty easy. You can. Head on over to Twitter. Follow us at Film File UK. Look for us on other social media platforms, Film File UK, including YouTube, where you'll now find that we upload each episode audio-wise each week you can also get in touch with us directly via email you can find an email over to podcast at filmfile.uk with anything film wise or entertainment wise that you want us to talk about on the show any 
top 10 lists, any films you recommend that we should go and see, anything that we've reviewed that you disagree with our reviews of. We're not here to criticise your opinions, unless you say Paul Blartmore Cop's a great film. <laughs> so feel free to throw opposing viewpoints out to us and uh, we'll we'll cover you on the show. Interestingly enough, I listened back to the show this week, not in the comfort of my own car, but I, I listened back on, on YouTube, which was a strange experience listening to it on YouTube. <laughs> very strange. I, uh, uh, Yeah, very strange. I'm going to go with that. So become part of the Film File family. And please, 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 we implore you to tell your friends and help expand what we do here. Because what we do here is done from the heart. Yeah. Okay, so this week we've got a deep dive. And that deep dive is not one, not two, but four films, all related to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. From deep space. A uh, space flower? Why not a space flower? The seed is planted. Why do we always expect metal ships? It smells lovely. Put it down, Jack. Terror grows. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Donald Sutherland. Brooke Adams. Leonard Nimoy. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Rated PG. So where do you start when you start talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Do you start with the Philip Kaufman 70s version? Do you look into the Abel Ferreira version? Or do you come closer to home with the movie Invasion, which starred Daniel Craig? Or do you go right back to the beginning and look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, directed by the great Don Siegel? Well, yes, because if you're going to start with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you've got to start right back at the beginning. The film starred the great Kevin McCarthy, and Dana Winter. It's a black and white film, but don't let that put you off because it is wonderfully compelling. The film storyline concerns an extraterrestrial invasion that begins in a small California town. Alien plant spores have fallen from space and grow into large seed pods, each one capable of producing a visually identical replica of the human being that they are closest to. As each of the pod reaches full development, it assimilates the physical traits, the memories and the personalities of each of the sleeping person placed near it. These duplicates, however, are devoid of any human emotion. And little by little, a local doctor uncovers the quiet invasion and attempts to halt it. This came out in the 1950s when the idea of being taken over by a larger threat, namely communism, was right across all science fiction movies at the time. However, this film did play into the paranoia of the era, but did it so much better than a lot of its peers. This film is gripping. This film is unnerving. This film is one of those B-movies that you can actually class as an absolute classic, based on Jack Finney's 1954 science fiction novel. This has always been ripe to be remade because it talks about the era that we live in. Of course, as I said, this one was a metaphor for communism. The other movies, like the next movie that came out in 1978, was a metaphor for something else. But first, Andy. It's interesting that you mentioned that this was a metaphor for communism. And you know, many see it as a play on McCarthyism, because that's actually been disputed by producer Walter Mersch in his autobiography. His autobiography, I Thought We Were Making Movies, Not History. He wrote, people began to read meanings into pictures that were never intended. 
The Invasion of the Body Snatchers is an example of that. I remember reading a magazine article arguing that the picture was intended as an allegory about the communist infiltration of America. From personal knowledge, neither Walter Wanger nor Don Siegel, who directed it, nor Dan Meinwaring, who wrote the script, nor original author Jack Finney, nor myself saw it as anything other than a thriller, pure and simple. But despite that, there is no denying that it definitely does seem to touch on the public consciousness of the time. And this is what is great about sci-fi, is that even without necessarily intending something to link to it, if it comes out at the right time, it can definitely resonate with the public consciousness. And this will become more relevant when we get to talking about the last film in this series, because that's one I, I watched for the first time this week. And when I get to talk about it, I'll explain how that's relevant, that sometimes you can accidentally stumble on the right time in history to release something. My first introduction to the original adaptation from 1956 came after the 1978 one. So it was a bit of a strange thing to go back to that earlier film. And yes, it's a black, like you say, yes, it's a black and white film, but don't let that put you off. The effects work for the time are really stunning and it's still chilling. I do feel that the pacing in this original one, it seems to, it doesn't let it time to slowly gestate. It rapidly moves through the story. It keeps a momentum going. It keeps a frenetic activity. Yet as around him, people are starting to change subtly in their behaviours and making him distrust everyone that's going on. It's not a slow build. It's a very prompted and very rapid build with you know, quick exposition, pushing it further along and pushing it further along. And it doesn't let you sit back and forget what's happening. It just keeps you on that ride right to the end. It's a cracking example of 50s sci-fi. You're absolutely right, Andy. It is a a cracking example of the best in 50s sci-fi because a lot of 50s sci-fi was was incredibly forgettable and very B-movie-esque. It's the chilling nature. And and, and while they said this is not about, about communism, this is about losing identity to something greater. And, and the two are highly equatable because other science fiction movies and other movies from that period reflect the time that they were made in. This does have a, a strangely timeless quality to it because it is so much about a, a small community that's getting taken over until the end reveal in the, that very, very last shot. Yeah, uh, And we know from film history that there that the um, there was a wraparound connected to the film shot later which was to to there to try and make make it feel as though everything wasn't doom laden uh, and and that kind of nicely leads in to the Philip Kaufman 1978 version and we talked about you know movies being resonant of their time this did it in such a different way uh, and seen by many to be the version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This was the first one that I saw. I caught this on TV as a child, and boy, did it terrify me. It absolutely terrified me. The phrase pod people became very key in my vocabulary. If people were acting weird, they were a pod person. But the closing shot stuck in my mind from that early age and still chills me today. Donald Sutherland in this 1978 version, as a health inspector, cruises through the early parts of the film with witty rapport 
which soon dissipates as the world around him gets stranger. And that's a great thing that I've noticed with this is that at the start, he's quite witty and he's, you know, he's very vocal. He's, he's very, then he's he, very he, Donald Sutherland at the time. He really, yeah. it, it, it just everything you loved about Donald Sutherland in, in the, in the seventies, this is uh, uh, the perfect role for him. But then as the film progresses and things around him start to get weirder and weirder, he kind of regresses into himself and becomes quieter and just perceiving things around him. The whole cast in this film are always worth mentioning. You know, you've you've got Leonard Nimoy um, in a chilling... I mean, bearing in mind that when I watched this as a kid, I was heavily into Star Trek. So seeing Leonard Nimoy suddenly in this kind of film freaked me out. Uh, Jeff Goldblum in a nice early role. Veronica Cartwright, the marvellous Veronica Cartwright, who always gives 110%. Brooke Adams, who is absolutely engaging the things she can do with just a roll of the eyes is better than anyone else can actually act their whole life through and everyone gives everything to make this chilling tale work even without the marvelous effects work I mean, even what is a shoddy cheap effect of just put a rubber mask on a dog and get into like put some peanut butter around the lips of it so he licks through the mouth but it, it still looks strikingly great even though it's yeah. such a simple effect and I remember that's another section that during my childhood when I watched it, that shot of the dog with the human head was terrifying. It's absolutely brilliant. But this is a film that definitely benefits from rewatching because moments that you miss the first time round, such as the bin men loading, a, loading wagons up with rubbish, which looks like strange web-like shredding, and you don't realise until later on the film that that's the dried husks of what were once humans. So re-watching it again, and you can see that subtle build-up in the background playing out. It's that subtlety, and it's the tension on it as well. Like I said, the first film rapidly moved through. It was constantly progressing the story. This one spends time just letting things settle so that you start to get unnerved, and you start to look for things yourself going on the screen. You don't know who's, who's already taken over and who isn't, and it creates a real sense of paranoia throughout the whole film. And again, like the first film, and, and even though one of the producers said that that wasn't the case, this ties up into our own sense of, of, of paranoia, the paranoia of the self, you know, uh, uh, characters seeing therapists uh, trying to discover who they really are. Are the people around you the people that, that we want them to be? It tied into that post-70s Watergate when we didn't trust authority figures. It ties into this fact that, hey, sometimes remakes can bring so much more to a film than were originally intended and, and validates what we've talked about many times, that if the, the concept of, of a remake can sometimes bring out something a lot better than, yeah. than the original. It captures all the terrifying tone and effect of the Don Siegel movie. But it, it, it makes it bigger and it, and it exceeds in, in, with the concept and it exceeds in the way that it's delivered. Uh, it, it is simply a, a, a purely terrifying and genius movie. And, and it's a shame that we didn't get to see much more from Kaufman because he was a, 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 a very interesting and a director who, who played with the head more so than he played with, with, with visuals. We know that Leonard Nimoy was cast in it because... Kaufman was originally going to make the big screen Star Trek movie and had a close relationship with Nimoy. I, I, I absolutely adore it. Yeah. I saw this film in order. I saw the, the Siegel version and then I saw this. 
and, and you can't put a cigarette paper between the two of them. They are both so good. It, it's it's not quite a remake. It's not quite a sequel at the same time because there is a nod to the original in it. But it is this idea of of losing your humanity on a much much bigger bigger scale. Yeah. And I guess that takes us now to the third of the film, which um, is different again in its own right. And and I recently, which which brought us to doing this as a deep dive, I recently rediscovered the third version, which upon my original viewing, I didn't have much time for. And then I caught up with it recently. It was on a, a late night horror channel and it got me interested in it again in a way that mm. I didn't like it the first time my appreciation for for the third time it, it, it'd been brought to the screen it brought something different to it yeah it, abel ferrero's version from the 90s this was one that i got out on a vhs rental and i didn't quite i like yourself i didn't quite appreciate the first time around and i think it's because it had those previous two films to live up to and it doesn't live up to them it's nowhere near the quality of the previous two films but Agreed. it's not a bad film. It's a good adaptation of the source material, telling it in a different way. This time it's set in an army base. And the army base setting, when you when I rewatched it, one thing that I picked up on it is it's harder to determine whether soldiers are just acting militaristic and doing their duty in an honor honor of code of honor kind of way, yeah, or they're taken over. They it, it makes it harder to pick up who you can trust and who you can't. And it's a faster film. It only takes 45 minutes to basically get to where the last act was in the previous two films. It rapidly gets to the point and then it becomes a survival horror movie. So it takes a different approach. The things that this does well, and Ferreira was known for doing this. He's someone who breaks taboos and he does controversial approaches and he uses children in this one. He yeah. uses children and there's nothing more chilling in a horror than a child who's changed and turned and you have to decide whether or not to kill them. And this is a taboo of horror that for years, it's like, you don't kill a kid. I mean, Stephen King always says that he, he um, regrets killing the kid in his um, in Cujo, the book, because you should never kill a kid because people straight, straight away are put off the film or put off the book or put off the story in total. But Ferreira doesn't care about that. He will do something to shock you. And it does shock you. The effects, in, the effects in this third one are great. It has to be said that the, the takeover pod effects are absolutely masterful. There's only one effect towards the end of the film that is absolutely tragically put together. And that's uh, involving someone falling from a helicopter and screaming. And yeah. it, it's worse than like the elongated arms um, of Dick Jones in Robocop. It's that level of bad effects. But it doesn't detract from the fact that this is a, another great adaptation of the source material. And once again, it's a film that plays on the, not only the paranoia, but the fear of sleeping. Because if they get you when you're asleep, you can't do anything to protect yourself while asleep. And that's a great fear to tap into. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on everything that you said. Uh, I, I didn't like it initially. Uh, and, and going back and revisiting it, yes, it, it does move at a heck of a pace uh, compared to to, to uh, the previous movies. It's it's quite economical. There are a couple of moments that really let it down. That is, you know, the effect that you said right at the end, which is really really poor. Gabrielle Anwar, who's a, a a British actress, feels miscast, and she's got a she's got a very poor American accent. 
which which kind of lets it down a little bit. It felt as though there was a bit of studio interference and it got cut down to be a, a much more zippier horror movie. But one of the things that came out of watching it again was how great and how terrifying Meg Tilly is mm. in in her role, and and she she delivers one line in it which is absolutely chilling uh, when she's become uh, a pod duplicate, uh, and 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 that alone took me back into how great this film is and how I needed to reconsider it. Yeah. Absolutely agree. It's a film that a lot of people have avoided because it's got a lot of negativity around it. Loads of people like it, it very much overlooked at the time and very much maligned. But if you like the other two films, then by all means, check out this third film. But because to some it, extent, it could still exist within the world of, yeah. of the Donald Sutherland movie. And that's what, what I love about the, like particularly these three films is that they could kind of be seen as being linked together in the same world setting, just in different locations. It's only when it gets to the fourth film that you can't link the fourth film in with any of the franchise because it does something completely different. Now, I've not seen the fourth film, and I only know of it by reputation. came out several years ago, uh, was panned by the critics, didn't do very well at all at the box office. But it seems from what we talked about prior to recording that it brings something different to the Body Snatcher story. Yes, after three films which have had like, a, a, you know, an alien entity which takes a plant-like form and becomes pods and humans grow out of those pods while you're asleep and replace you and your husk falls apart. Now we have a similar concept, but it's on a genetic level because it's done as a virus. They take a viral strain that enters your bloodstream and starts to mutate your DNA and turn you into a replicant. Not a pod person anymore. You're no longer grown from a pod. It's your actual body is taken over. Nicole Kidman leads this film and she leads it well. She is powerful as a mother trying to protect her son as things around her are starting to get all twisted and distorted and there's a pandemic outbreak and they're trying to find a cure and her son may hold the cure but her ex-husband has took her son away from her. Daniel Craig gives a, a great appearance but doesn't really do much or add much but there's an early appearance from Jeffrey Wright that I completely, completely was not aware of in this and my goodness Jeffrey Wright has always been an engaging character. Uh, Veronica Cartwright pops up in a small role I'd completely missed this film when it got released. The reviews at the time were savage, 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. And so it kind of put me off giving it a chance. And if I had watched it back then, I probably would have agreed with the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But it's the fact that I've watched this film about a pandemic that makes you wary of approaching or interacting with other people. And I'm watching it now when we are living in an age where we've just been through a pandemic that has changed how we behave around other people. I think this film was ahead of its time. I think this film got right. released in the wrong year. Everything that put me off this film was, wasn't to do with the film itself. It was to do with basically Warner's playing with it and tinkering with the finished movie because the film that we got in 2007 wasn't the film that was intended. So it was directed by German director Oliver Hirschbegel, but additional scenes were written by the Wachowskis and directed by James McTeague, who was uh, their go-to DP, who also shot V for Vendetta. So there's clearly a lot of tinkering 
And one always assumes when it gets to that stage prior to release is that the film was more subtle than originally the studio wanted. And, and therefore, let's try and beef it up. Can you detect from seeing Andy, and as I said, I've not seen this, that, that it feels as though it's being played with by a studio? There is an element of that. It goes quite rapidly from being, you know, quite low key and dramatic to suddenly having some action. And the action is really good. And it does have that feel of like there's a couple of different ideas and creative creative decisions that have been forced into it. But I don't think it upsets the flow. Daniel Craig, like I say, Daniel Craig just seems to be there. He's good, but he doesn't really contribute. And you get the feeling that there was a lot more to his character, but that's been chopped. But I do think that overall it it feels okay. It's more fast-paced. It's more action-focused than paranoia-focused. And it updates it quite well by throwing out hokey pulp sci-fi to deliver something closer to home. One thing that stands out from this version of it is one of the closing lines by Jeffrey Wright, which is that for better or for worse, we're human again, Uh, because people can can be cured in this version. For better or worse, we're human again. And this is something that is played through each of the films, even though the book didn't. Now, the book made it clear that this alien species that has the pods that creates replicants to us only has a short life and they can't reproduce. And so they basically kill worlds and then move on to another world, leaving dry, empty husk behind. The films have always played on the idea that maybe humanity will be better off because these pod people are one species and they get on. There's no wars and there's no fear. There's no hunger. Everyone will live in harmony and you retain your memories. So it's always played on that background idea that maybe, just maybe, humanity would be better if we were all pod people. And this 2000s version is the first one to actually drop in a line that makes it very clear that, you know, the people who survived at the end is like, for better or worse, we're human again. And I love that ending. I love that little perspective of like, yeah, maybe, just maybe, we need to be better. Yeah, you talked about uh, the, the idea that the pod people don't live very long, which comes directly from Jack Finney's uh, original story, The Body Snatchers. The interesting thing, and one of the reasons that we wanted to tackle this, is that there's always going to be a right time to bring back Invasion of the Body Snatchers, based around how the world is, because each of the films reflect something of the world that they're in. Have we seen the last of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers movies? I don't think so. I think whenever the time's right, whenever the world doesn't feel as though everything's going according to plan, whether we don't trust the people around us, that's when there's an invasion film ready to go. Which, in 2016, when quite a lot of factors affected the world, either over in the EU with the Brexit being voted through, causing a lot of upset and distrust, and a certain president getting elected in the US causing a lot of distrust, It was followed a year later with an announcement in 2017 that another adaptation of Invasion of the Body Snatchers was in the pipeline with David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, who gave us Conjuring 2 and 3 and the Aquaman films scripting. Now, that's currently in limbo, but I think we are ripe. I think we are ripe to see this be brought back to life because the environment and the world setting that we live in at the moment definitely is turning people against each other. 
and you need a body snatchers film to remind you of why we shouldn't turn against each other excellent and if we want to watch any of the invasion of the body snatchers movies where can we find them most of them you'll have to pick up and buy uh, the 78 version and the 56 version do frequently drop onto bbc iplayer or i believe one of them is currently available on amazon prime i got through the mgm subscription so the MGM subscription on Amazon Prime, you can watch the 1978 version. The rest of them, you'll have to rent them available on all services or buy them available on Blu-ray, DVD, whatever your format is. You'll probably still find a VHS somewhere. <laughs> right. It, well, they are absolutely ripe for re-watching. But maybe this time, just don't stop with the Kaufman film. Check out the other two as well. Yes. And that's this week's Deep Dive. And we'll be back again next week with another Deep Dive. So Andy, what reviews? Do we have this week? And we know there's not much out for the likes of us film geeks this week. Yes, uh, there's not a lot this week. So we'll start with Moonshot, which is a sci-fi rom-com that landed on Sky last week, but is now available for rental on other services. It was a HBO Max original, so it wasn't a Sky original, so it wasn't that bad. Hello? Hey. What are you doing here? Who sneaks onto spaceships? I can explain. Ever since I was a kid, I've dreamt of going to Mars. You can keep my dream alive. Come with me. You cannot, under any circumstances, leave my room, okay? This is gonna suck, isn't it? Only for 35 days. You have to keep a low profile. All right, you guys, I'm your captain. This is Sophie, my girlfriend. Long-term girlfriend. I don't remember you from orientation. What happened? You have to come right back and just rip his jumpsuit off. <laughs> hey, what's up? I just miss you. Sorry, do we have a call scheduled? Come on, let's go have some fun. I don't do fun. You also don't fly on rockets or conspire with stowaways. Sophie, for what? 100 bucks says you just sent that into your wrist. Just gotta face it, you're a space criminal now. This is a sci-fi rom-com, which could have very well left out the sci-fi bit and just set itself on Earth. It sees a boy meet a girl, and then the girl leaves the next day to go on a mission and live on Mars. And the boy sets off to find her by stowing away on one of the Mars vessels. He wants to go to her and declare his undying love to her. He's uncovered by another girl who begrudgingly helps him, only to, oh, I think you can kind of see where the plot's going to go as they travel there. And you'll already know how it will play out. This is Rom-Com Formula 101. As the two travellers who don't see eye to eye start to bond through the journey to predictable outcomes. And like I say, the sci-fi aspect could have been left on the cutting room floor. This could have just been between two countries, between two cities. This is generic, bland sci-fi. But you know what? Despite the tropish nature, it kind of works as passable entertainment. The cast are likeable. And there's some moments that really did charm. But it's just the fact that we've seen this all done before and so much better that lets it down. There's no breaking of conventions. Everything plays out exactly as you could predict. Disposable entertainment, worth a watch at best. But that's about as good as I can say. Um, yeah, two words that, I, that don't go together for me is rom-com and sci-fi. Romance and sci-fi. Many times go well together looking at you, Starman. But yeah, I don't know, Andy. I, I don't feel drawn to it. What else have we got? And landed on Netflix this week, Silverton Siege. Yeah, I was I was tackling uh, what to watch, but I decided that I was going to go full on TV catch up 
and, uh, and, and moved on from this one. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a bank robbery. So you stay calm and you go home. You're all the same. Nothing but criminals. If our lives are worth nothing, then maybe we negotiate for a life that is worth everything. Tell me what it is you want. We want the immediate release of Nelson Mandela. You have one hour, Captain. What you're trying to do here is impossible. You know, a man once said it always seems impossible until it's done. Why are you doing this? What does it prove? As long as one of us is in chains, then none of us are free. What if we turn this into a movement? No surrender, no retreat. Based on true events from the 25th of January 1980 in South Africa, this fictionalised retelling of events of that day, approximately 60% accurate according to the filmmakers, shows how a group of freedom fighters who are striking out against apartheid abandon a planned sabotage and find themselves holed up in a bank. They take the employees and customers in the bank hostage and work to send their message without harming anyone. In the process of listing demands, they include the demands to free Nelson Mandela. However, with a potential traitor in their midst, the tensions amongst the group rise. This film has a very similar vibe to Dog Day Afternoon, where a hostage situation occurs through chance and gains media coverage, allowing for a political message to be sent to the world. And whilst this film isn't as strong as that earlier film, the real-life events and some solid casting make it a worthy watch. The three leads in particular strike a strong presence on screen. Thabo Rometsi, playing Calvin, is utterly compelling. Support is mixed, but the presence of Arnold Vosloo, who you might remember from the Mummy films, adds well in the role as the police captain trying to negotiate with them. Whilst it does seem to play with tropes a lot and skims over some of the more complex issues, the film certainly delivers and some well-shot action moments at the start of the film and towards the tense climax. It's a worthy effort from director Mandela Dube and one that opens our eyes to a much-forgotten footnote in the start of the free Mandela movement of the 80s. Well worth a watch. All right, so hopefully next week we're both going to have seen Doctor Strange and that will be our big review for next week because I'm, I'm guessing, Andy, there's not much opening next to Doctor Strange. No, uh, it's Doctor Strange and nothing else at the cinemas next week. There might be a few low-key indie ones, but all your main cinemas are going to be packed with multiple showings of Doctor Strange. Uh, on streaming, however, now TV and Sky, we get to see one of Bruce Willis's last remaining roles to be released as he stars in Deadlock, here playing the villain in a film that sees a rogue group of mercenaries on a mission of vengeance. There's also Last Letter from Your Lover, which sees a journalist find a series of love letters from the 60s and explore the truth behind an affair from the past, adapted from the novel by Jojo Myers. Over on Netflix, Marmaduke, a new animated movie based on the famous comic strip dog. Is worth avoiding. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost in the Shell standalone complex 2045 Sustainable War. Yes, the Ghost in the Shell series with the ever-expanding titles. This is a feature-length recut of the first series of standalone complex 2045. On Amazon, Into the Spider-Verse lands on Amazon this week. Why not revisit it Into the Spider-Verse? It's a marvellous film. And The Contractor, which sees Chris, Pri Chris Pine playing a special forces sergeant named James Harper, who's caught up in a dangerous assignment and on the run for his life. Typical Chris Pine out output there. So that's all that there is this coming week. So I'm guessing then that's about it for this week. But before we go, and we do this, of course, every week, it's our neat things. Things that we've enjoyed, uh, watched, played, eaten, 
you name it, as long as we've had a good time with it and we think it's pretty neat, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, your neat thing. Well, my neat thing this week. Now, you know that for years I've had Marvel Unlimited. I've been reading my comics on my cheap subscription of just over £50 a year, being able to delve into a back catalogue and a history of Marvel comics at will and also getting more recent up-to-date issues to catch up with the storylines. Well, I've been waiting for this one. I've been waiting a while. You've had bated breath, haven't you, for this one? DC Infinite, which launched in the US almost two years ago, has now finally released this past week in the UK. And boy, is it amazing. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of archive copies of comics Issues that have been out for six months go onto the service, so you'll always be six months behind the shelves. So if you're that desperate that you need to stay up to date, still stick with your comic book reading. But if you're happy to wait, and you're normally a graphic novel collector anyway, it's well worth doing this. And in order to get access to all this wealth of diverse comics, including things from um, the Vertigo lines, so you've got your Hellblazers, you've got your Sandmans. You mentioned Sandman as a neat thing, um, the comic, a few episodes ago. I've now got that on my reading list. I'm, I'm three issues in and I'm absolutely loving the because I'd never read it either. And these are a- available on there. There's also some of the cults, classic, like DC horror anthology comics that they used to do. They're within there. There's a wealth of material. And I am having fun building l- lists of what I want to work through. And what price do you have to pay for such such delights and such treats? How much, Andy? How much? £9.99 a month, which sounds expensive. So why not opt for the £36.99 a year? Ooh, that works out better, doesn't it? Basically, if you're looking at most comics now, a what, £4 to £5 to buy? Yeah, so yeah. If you, if, you, if you read just like eight comics through this whole app through a year, you've more or less made your money back. I mentioned to you my... Uh, growing dislike of comicsology, something that I was a massive, massive fan uh, for years. That was my preferred way of reading. When Amazon really got their claws into it, it's gone downhill rapidly. Very disappointing. The the interface is poor. Uh, even the fact that you can't subscribe to your favorite comics anymore makes it yeah. uh, makes it invaluable. Yeah. So I'm I'm getting very bored. There used to be. Used to be great sales on there where you could, uh, you know, um, every week they'd have a sale for, um, especially if they're tying into a movie or some sort of uh, a TV series release, that they'd always have a, a sale based around it. Even that seems to be shoddy now. I'm, I'm kind of out, and I, and I said I don't really ever do I'm out speeches, yeah. but I, I, my patience has been tested with it. I thought they might have listened to fans, try to uh, resurrect the old interface. But, but it seems not. So maybe this is where I want to go because I don't spend a huge amount on comics like I used to. But if 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 this is a way of, of jumping in for, you know, 30 odd quid to get everything, and it's mainly back issues that I get and, and classics, mm. then, then perhaps this is where I'm going to go and leave comicsology behind. Who knows? But it does sound intriguing. Okay, my neat thing is I've gone back to the gym. Ooh. I've been threatening to do so for nearly two years. <laughs> After I had COVID, it kind of knocked my confidence a little bit. I, I, I was a huge kickboxing fan. I would go kickboxing uh, twice, uh, if not once a week. 
COVID left me, left my fitness levels really poor. I've always taken care of myself. I've always looked after myself. And COVID did a bit of a number on me. It took me a good six months to get my energy levels back to where they were prior to kickboxing. But by then, my fitness levels were, were so poor that I, I just couldn't face going back to it. I've been debating going back to the gym, been debating getting my, my health back into shape. So uh, bit the bullet, went back to the gym. I'm not going to mention which, which gym I'm going back to because it's not relevant. But, but just going back to the, the gym is making me confident again uh, about myself and my health. It's not 100%. You know, I, 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 what really concerns me about COVID is that we now live in a COVID world and we've got to, got to carry on. It, it's not gone away. And, and, and even as we record this, there was a, a, a worry about the next variant that's going to come along. And it might be more imminent than, than we than we anticipated. And, and, and oddly, yeah, coming to the cinema yesterday, seeing the world basically forget about it and, and interact. There was only a couple of people in, in the screenings I went to see yesterday that were wearing masks. I, I want to be in good shape again. and it, it took a lot to get me there. My mental health has not been as good as it could have been recently, but at least I feel as though I'm now doing something positive. And, I, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm bound to look like Chris Hemsworth again. <laughs> Did I say again? I'm bound to look like Chris Hemsworth in my dreams. <laughs> but it's, it's good to be able to exercise because it, exercising physically certainly has that, that effect on, on your mentality as well. And uh, uh, it's good to be back in the gym. So that's my neat thing that I'm actually doing something again rather than becoming a couch potato. And I'm looking at you Easter eggs that have helped with that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's us for this week. We'll be back again with another film file next week. Next week, we're going to mention, of course, Doctor Strange. Uh, I think it's about right that we talk about Moon Knight next week. Yes, uh, with the season finale coming up this week, then it's. I think we've got a lot to reflect on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we've definitely held off from talking about that. Any other plans for the week, Andy? It's going to be busy at work with Doctor Strange. Uh, I've also, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to announce anything here, but there's uh, some news that I broke to you last night yes, that uh, might might impact on the future of the show. But we're working our ways on it, so I've got to have a lot of thinking over this next week. Yeah, we'll figure it out because that's what we do. We figure it out. So we'll see you again next week. Thank you as ever. Goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from him and Andy. They're here already. You're next. You're next.